0: And I'm ready, so come on, baby. This week
1: on Feminasty, we are so excited to have our first crossover episode with Jacqueline Friedman's Unscrewed podcast. We were on hers last week, and we're really excited to continue that conversation here right now. Uh, for those of you who don't know Jacqueline, she is an old friend of ours. She is a writer, speaker, and activist, and creator of the hit books Yes Means Yes, Visions of Female Sexual Power in a World Without Rape, which was one of Publishers Weekly's Top 100 Books of 2009 and number 11 on Ms. Magazine's Top 100 Feminist Nonfiction of All Time list. And P.S. Samita and I are both contributors to that book. Uh, Jacqueline is also the author of What You Really, Really Want, The Smart Girl's Shame-Free Guide to Sex and Safety, And the forthcoming book, Unscrewed, named after her podcast. Uh, Her podcast, Unscrewed, is paving new paths to sexual liberation and was named one of the best sex podcasts by both Marie Claire and Esquire. And I also want to make note that this, because this is a special crossover episode, Um, And because basically we talked to Jacqueline forever because we love her and she's incredibly easy to talk to, Samita and I are forgoing our usual like intro banter. And we're just going to share with you the banter that we had with Jacqueline for the whole interview.
0: And so we're going to talk about your book and my book and all kinds of feminist stuff all messed up together in this conversation. Is that the plan? That is the plan I love it, I love it, we'll just get into it But first, as you know, you have to go through the lightning round If you're going to be on Unscrewed, are you ready?
1: <laughs> yes,
0: I guess so Okay, what's been making you the happiest this week? Samita, you want to go first?
2: Shit <laughs> <laughs> What's been making, what's, uh, okay um, Well, obviously this week, uh, what's making me the happiest is is our book coming out <laughs>
1: Yes. <laughs> Good point. Since this is airing on October 3rd, that is definitely the thing we're happiest about. And uh, I suspect we will have had a great event in D.C. the night before this airs. And we'll be looking forward to uh, our events around the country.
0: They're letting you have an event before the book officially pubs? Yes. I know. Scheduling My is publisher weird. has been, like, really intense about that. <laughs> like, the Boston Book Festival is, like, right before. And I- they were like, nope. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. we're not we're not embargoed. (laughs) That's
1: nice. Yeah. There's a lot of crazy. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, what is the best sex advice you ever received? Oh,
2: wow. Mm, The best sex advice I ever received. Well, Jacqueline, I feel like some of the best sex advice I ever read was, um, your piece about casual sex and not, um, and casual sex giving you the ability to not confuse intimacy with emotion um, or sexual intimacy with emotions that are more meaningful than that and the importance of kind of like creating that distinction when it feels right in my life
0: yay oh mm-hmm. you're the first person to come on and tell me that the best sex advice they received was from me there you go
1: I can't believe more people don't suck up. Um, no, they, they suck
0: up in a, in, a, in a question that comes later. I've actually had to make a rule that you can't answer me to that question, but they don't uh, suck okay. up to this question.
1: <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't know. The best sex advice I ever received was probably use birth control. Um, <laughs>
0: That's solid <laughs> advice. You, know, you can I like to- without getting pregnant.
1: Yeah, but in, in terms of just having good sex, I can't think of, you know, who I've heard it from or where I've read it, but I think just in general, um, having that freedom... Well, one person that I'll say, and it's, it's, I didn't necessarily get it from her, but she's written extensively on it, is um, Rachel Hill's... Her book, The Sex Myth, was so great at kind of exploding the idea that we all only have, you know, one kind of sex or one kind of sex is right, and everybody who's not doing that is somehow, um, you know, fucked up. And...
0: And so, that we're all super sexed all the time. Right, yeah.
1: yes. And that we're all super sexed all the time and that, it, you know, that never changes and never fluctuates or anything like that. Um, so I like the work that she has done there. Um, but yeah, otherwise,
0: pretty much wrap it up. <laughs> all right. Excellent. Wrap it up. <laughs> wrap her up. That is perennially good advice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In terms of news or current events related to sex and sexuality, What's been making you the maddest or saddest lately?
1: Um, so for me, dress codes. Um, I just saw another thing about uh, a school that is having for their um, homecoming dance, something like this. They're having every student who plans to wear a dress has to send it into the school for approval.
0: Oh, I saw. I just saw the headline. Yeah. And I was like, not today, Satan. Yeah, um,
1: right? Like, are you kidding me with this? Um, And a friend of mine, I posted on Facebook and she wrote about it and she had told me she's got a kindergartner who has a dress code. She is not allowed to wear tank tops or tank dresses. Um, The dress code says they must have underwear on, which, you know, That is fucking creep. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like five year olds. What are you talking about? um so that uh yeah that constant policing of female sexuality even when they're tiny babies is what's making me maddest this week
2: definitely the like ted cruz like porn <laughs> oh, uh, like thing that that's like it yeah. just like made me upset for so many reasons let me count the ways so number one <laughs> That's disgusting. Like, I do not want any reminder that Ted Cruz has a sex drive
1: or right.
2: penis body parts, like, or that he uses them in any way. Like, I think that alone is an off- offense to sex and, like, <laughs> it's, like, a direct offense to my sexuality. Um, and as, as someone who's burdened with the, the dis-ease of, of being attracted to men. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> The second is it really led me down a dark hole of not knowing that there was so much pornography on Twitter, um, which, and like, it was all really like raunchy and bad pornography. And I will say that like, of the pornography I use, I tend to focus on porn that's like made for women or is made by companies that have, um, you know, have accounted for labor rights and things like that. And so just kind of the reckless abandon with which the porn industry has grown um and how much that impacts our culture and the way that people and specifically young people because they have access to so much pornography has on pleasure and female pleasure and that really like you know i mean it was a weirdly like soft porn thing that he was into (laughs) If he in fact was the one that liked it, um, but you know, it was it just was kind of like wow, like we've made so much progress in terms of women expressing what they want from their own sexuality, but actually, there's this like whole underbelly that we still don't talk about, and I feel like we almost lost the conversation because everyone's like, "Don't be kink shaming, don't be this, don't be that," and it's like, no, of course not. But have you seen this stuff? Like, what woman? Right. Is this? Like, yeah. I don't want anyone to do that to me. That's terrible. You know, like. He's like very non the very mechanical and like very objectifying kind of sex acts. Um, and that's what I feel angry about right now.
0: Well, can I add a th- number 3 to your reasons it was horrible cuz he like then tweeted like, "Oh my god, like you- Americans are so hung up about sex. Like get over <laughs> yourselves." Yeah. And I was like, "What? Like <laughs> What what what? I literally was like could not I I still can't exactly inform words. Like, Ted Cruz is, like, wants to control all of our fucking bodies.
1: Right. <laughs> okay. And you know he's thinking, like, well, at least it was straight porn. So that's all uh, <laughs> That's all he gives a shit about in terms of his audience. Yeah. Right, like,
0: for him, <laughs> Ted Cruz, to say, like, we're too hung up on sex and need to, like, loosen up a little, I just, like... Right. <laughs> words fail. <laughs> okay. What's the biggest sex myth that you used to believe but don't believe anymore?
2: That a hard-on is a compliment. Yeah. Ooh,
1: good one. <laughs> and, and the flip side of that, that, you know, people who don't fit a certain, um, you know, certain body type or certain appearance don't get to have sex or don't deserve sex um and specifically i guess that i didn't deserve sex
0: in the body that i was in amen yes we all deserve pleasure mhm and you know human sexual attraction is a wild and varied thing's people are in if if you're if you have a body someone's into your kind of body
1: right that's exactly it that's the thing that nobody was saying when i was a kid was just like look there's you know every pot has a lid <laughs> like yep. everybody you know people are into lots of different things it was so i mean now with the internet and you know as much as the proliferation of bad porn is a might be a problem um there's also just so many more places to kind of get information about sex and sexuality and the kind of sex that people are having um whereas i was just growing up you know reading the same three magazines that all told me i would be worthy of love and sex if i got thinner
0: Yep. yep All right, lastly, and this is the question where people tend to suck up to me so you can't say me. (laughs) Who's one of the bravest people that you can think of who's doing work to unscrew the sexual culture in one way or or another?
2: I would say Zerlina Maxwell. uh, Yes. Because I think that she's just done, you know, I mean, she's just bore the brunt of talking about rape culture really publicly. I mean, she's talked about it on Fox News. Um, Mm -hmm. It's like the majority of what people troll her about. And I just think that you know considering that she's a survivor and how traumatizing that is every step of the way she continues she never backs down um and and she continues to kind of lift up the voices of women that have been sexually assaulted continually bring that into all of the work she does no matter how kind of far up she goes in you know i mean she was like a very high level person on the clinton campaign but at no point stepped away from that being her story and kind of um you know, using it as a platform to really raise awareness about sexual assault and and the importance of women telling their stories
1: absolutely um and I think I will go with a more general comment or uh, um, more general compliment rather to the my former colleagues and the people I still work with all the time as a speaker who are on the ground at colleges and universities right now trying to make sense of all of this. Title IX uncertainty and trying to encourage students to have healthy, positive sex lives and not rape each other um, and finding that balance into how to get that that kind of messaging out there. Um, so basically, all the people in the women's centers, in the LGBTQ centers, like I see you in the Title IX offices who are getting it from both sides where... You know, people are claiming that they're prosecution happy and then other people, you know, a lot of victims going through the process don't find it satisfying at all. Um, So, yeah, I just I see the work those people are doing and uh, I'm grateful for it because it does get through to some.
0: Yes. Fantastic. Absolutely. Um, All right. You survived the lightning round. Woohoo!
1: Since we're, we're on the courage theme, I think, unless something else emerges and we decide to plug this into a different theme. Um, sort of same question back to you. Who do you think is exceptionally brave out there um, and or doing excellent work on unscrewing the
0: culture? I want to shout out Sadie Doyle. Oh, nice. I just think that her writing is so both clear... But also, like, morally clear and emotionally clear. Um, she's just doing amazing work at Elle. She has, like, a newborn at home. <laughs> right. <laughs> just, like... Um, and she has it. not missed a beat in terms mm-hmm. of, like, you know, whether it's the Title nine stuff or, you know, anything else. Like, she is just on top of it. And every time I read her, I feel like I learned something about me. My thoughts get clearer. But also, I feel, like... I don't want to get corny, but I just feel like my heart open up. I feel like she writes yeah. from this very clear emotional place that helps me get in touch with, because I feel like it's so easy right now to just sort of like shut down. And I struggle with that a lot. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so I really appreciate the emotionalness that she brings to her work, especially when emotionalness well, is, is, is often treated as a, uh, a weakness when it's from women. sure
1: there's you know there's a vulnerability in her writing and and people you know take that and use it as license to just hit her in her softest spots yeah. all the time and she gets constantly so much crap um and i should note Sadie doyle nasty women contributor um woo-hoo! So, <laughs> woo-hoo!
0: and also so- she did a great show for us uh, when her book Trainwreck came out in hardcover, it's just yeah. out in paperback. Yeah. And her book Trainwreck is so fantastic. Also. It really is. Um, so, yeah, lots of love for Sadie. Yes. Oh,
1: that does my heart good. And and yeah. I think it's 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 absolutely true that she is so honest and so vulnerable in her writing. And I think that's a big reason we wanted her. And I think it it makes such a difference because so often we're reading the same takes over and over Um, And there's not much that sort of pierces the the kind of cynicism or the just, you know, getting bleary-eyed from having read the same takes over and over. And Sadie often finds the way in that makes me go like, oh, that's, you know, that's different from how I've thought about it before.
0: There are a lot of smart writers, but she's Mm -hmm. smart and and she makes me feel. Like, she she puts me back in touch with my feelings. And I really appreciate that work. That's hard labor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that
2: she, like, goes back to it after she is attacked constantly. Uh, yeah, right. and,
0: and, and yeah, legit, her making herself vulnerable in that way that makes me feel, like, makes her a huge target. And I, I don't know how she keeps getting up and doing it again.
1: Yeah, definitely. So many women like that. You know, there was a study that just came out um, within the last couple of weeks that said... Uh, basically proved the feminists right that, oh, oh, it was about Reddit shutting down the hate sites mm. and how that improved the discourse overall. Just like okay. we've all been saying, <laughs> right, just like we've all been saying about comments, about Twitter, about on, all online interaction that basically, like, yeah, you have to moderate out the worst crap in order to make
0: room for the conversation that people need to have. Um, well, you and, know, I, not to be all pluggy, but I talk about this in Unscrewed, the idea that these who own these platforms have that there's some kind of ideal neutral platform that you can have that if you don't interfere with free speech that somehow you'll reach this like beautiful neutral nirvana and it's absolute bullshit right like these guys then they're all fucking guys who own these (laughs) platforms and i've been in meetings with them and you know like they posit like they they basically think that free speech and safety are intention right yeah because their free speech is in tension with women and people of color and trans people's safety, right? Right, Right. exactly. That's what that framework actually means. Yeah. Um, Because you know, both of you know, like our free speech is only available to us when we are safe enough to speak. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's the thing, and and that goes back to what you say, you know,
1: this uh, hypothetical ideal kind of neutral platform That's the thing that if you know, if it's completely unfettered, unmoderated speech, then what happens people shout down other people, you have this idea that if we put no restrictions on speech whatsoever, then we'll just get to hear all voices equally. And that's never how it happens. What you have. Are some voices drowning out the other voices? And who's going to be doing the drowning out? It's the people who are rude enough to keep shouting the people who don't give a shit what anybody else has to say. Those are the people who are going to win the kind of free speech contest if we pretend that all we have to do is like hold out the microphone and let everyone speak at once, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, it's bullshit that our public squares are now owned by private companies. It's Mm -hmm. incredibly problematic. But as long as that's true until we find a way to make that not true again, uh, I think that the goal should be less neutrality and more transparency. Right. Like each of these companies should say what their goddamn values are and live up to them. And that's going to alienate some users, which is why they don't want to do it, right? But they're already alienating users by being like, it's okay if you get rape and death threats and racist abuse and Nazis and whatever, depending on who you are, like, constantly when you try to speak. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you have to pick a team. You have to decide who is your priority and what your values are if you're going to run a platform where people interact with each other.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I feel like with... We kind of learned that the hard way in the early years of feminist blogging, right? Because it was, you know, no one really knew what to do with comments early on. Um, And you realize quickly that you as a website administrator are judged for the company you keep, right? And so whether we want it to be intentional or not, you end up giving people platforms and you know, they reproduce certain dynamics in these spaces. And and I think that that is, that does hold up a new responsibility for the Twitters of the world. You know, like that that does create a new responsibility to be able to create space where people can equitably kind of engage in those conversations without having to be, you know, attacked every step of the way.
1: Absolutely. I was just reading through um, some old essays earlier and one thing that I wrote that I published on Dame a couple years ago was about like that entire war. And when I started, when I was writing for Salon um, in 2008 to 2010, they were still like the powers that be were still very much like you have to get in there and engage with commenters. If you just go and show them that you're a real person, they'll stop. And everybody knows that, especially like, I don't even know. I haven't looked in years, but Salon comments were a cesspool at that point. Um, And the idea that I was supposed to be going in there for like, there would be no amount of money that would have made that. Okay. But what they were paying me definitely did not.
0: Right. Right. right.
1: Um, To go in there and take that abuse. And I was just like, this is where people just weren't caught up to the fact that this is our workplace now. And what you're saying is that like, every time I turn in a report to my supervisor, I have to stand there and have, 11 guys who don't work here scream at me that i'm a stupid bitch like and yeah that's um that's not good for anybody's free speech the guardian
0: used to do that too they've Mm -hmm. completely done a a 180 but they used to like really push you to go in. yeah i remember that too
1: and so you know looping this back to courage it absolutely takes a ton of courage to be out there doing this i think you know, we were talking on a Facebook thread the other day with Anita Sarkeesian, who is the same, you know, she has been so relentlessly harassed and threatened, and she's still out there doing it, which I love. That's just incredibly brave and incredibly
0: nasty, I think. Incredibly nasty. Yeah, yes. Zoe Quinn, too. I just got to uh, be in conversation with her at her um, Boston book event for a Crash Override, and we had her on the show on Unscrewed, too. Oh, awesome. And um, and the thing that Zoe is doing that I think is delightfully courageous and nasty is also saying I don't want to be the poster child for this anymore. Like, I didn't yeah. sign up to be an activist or, like, take on all the tech companies. And I've done a bunch of that work. But actually, I want to get back to making sex farce video games. Right. With right? Like, and, and I actually really love that. I remember... Um, many, <laughs> it seems like not that long ago, probably to us, but it actually is probably a while ago when the all the photos came out and the stuff came out about Chris Brown abusing Rihanna. Mm-hmm. And in the aftermath of that, everyone was like fucking policing Rihanna and like whether or not she was being a good role model. Yes. And I was like, girlfriend did not sign up for abuse and right? therefore she didn't sign up to be a good role model to anybody. She was living her life you know yeah. being a rock star actually uh and she should be able to go on doing that um and so i don't give a shit if she comes out with an sm th- theme single or what like she doesn't owe us anything because she somebody abused her and that's how i feel about zoe like having that courage to be like actually i i've done this you know I'm i'm grateful for the work that zoe's done she's done some great work Uh, Around her husband and abuse. But I love that she's standing up and saying, I honestly, like, this is not my gig. Like, I didn't choose this. And so, fuck you, I'm going back to the stuff I choose.
1: Yeah, I think more broadly, that's another form of courage that I really admire is when people are willing to say, like, this is not for me and I'm going to quit it. I think there are so many times when we are encouraged, especially as women, to just kind of like stick it out and sacrifice for other people. And to be able to say, like, no, I'm—that that is not what I wanted. And especially it happens when you're a victim, you know. I remember um, after I was raped in college, people kept telling me, you're so strong, you're so strong. And I kept being like, fuck that. Like, I don't want to be strong. <laughs> like, I want to be weak and not in this position. Like, that would be what I would prefer. Um, and And that strength just didn't feel meaningful to me when it was something that I was forced into yeah
0: yeah it it reminds me of something which is a little bit different which is um you you guys know and i think that's probably why you picked me for courage you know Mm -hmm. that i have a tattoo on my arm that says brave yes um and i got that tattoo for like really personal reasons which was it's mostly about trying to live up to it right it's it's like a note to self Mm -hmm. (laughs) like (laughs) when you're faced with a choice between the easy path and what you know to be the right path like it's commitment to always try and take the right path over the easy path nice in subsequent years i started to think like people must think it's like really (laughs) braggadocio i'm so brave um and i've been in meetings with people who've been through like unbearable shit and survived and been like oh my god i'm so embarrassed about my tattoo (laughs) that's neither here nor there um people tend to tell me they think i'm brave when I stand up and talk about having been the victim of sexual abuse. And I don't feel like that's brave of me anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, it was at first when I started doing it. uh, But I also was really driven to do it. And now I just am in such a place. It's so long ago, and I've done so much work and come through the other side. And I just feel like I don't feel ashamed of this. Like, I don't feel... I mean, I may be brave because I know that, like, a lot of assholes are going to target me (laughs) because of it. I'll take that. But, like, just speaking my truth and telling my story, I feel like I want to. Like, I'm glad that people are listening if they're listening. And it doesn't feel... Yeah. I just reject that fucking stigma. Like, I feel like in order to assume that I'm brave, you have to assume that I accept the stigma.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, like, what feels brave to us Um, you know being surrounded by people that encourage us to tell our stories and you know in in many ways like our careers have almost been rewarded right for um, you know our said bravery I think to the average person who kind of doesn't have access to that kind of stuff like it is very brave right and and even for me I mean I took years to finally come out and talk about being sexually assaulted and I, I recently wrote about my experience um, for this essay I, I did for Roxanne Gay's upcoming book about kind of being being a feminist activist who was sexually assaulted while I was a feminist activist. Like I had already gotten a book deal. I had already mm-hmm. kind of been this public person and it felt inappropriate and indulgent and kind of too self-involved for me to start talking about being sexually assaulted at that point in my career. and Aww. And I didn't think about it as bravery necessarily, but when I started to write about it, I was like, I'm being brave right now because I am going against these kind of traditional understandings of what it means to be a professional woman, what it means to be a feminist woman, what it kind of means to be proper and politically appropriate in the public space. You know, and and kind of Jacqueline, similar to you, feeling like it's my job at this point. Like, why, like, this isn't brave. Like, this is, you know, this is literally just, like, what I do and going through the motions of it. But then even within that, I realized that it did require a certain amount of bravery on my part to even come forward with the story because of all the fear I had of, like, you know, of how much I was judging myself and how much I felt Mm -hmm. like, you know, my job at this point having... Um, you know some kind of platform from which to speak my job is really to elevate other women's voices so like why should I go back to my own you know realizing that I kind of done many years of this work without kind of talking about my own story and so you know for me someone like you like you're so brave right that you've been able to kind of talk about it, you know, like talk about it so early on in your career and something that's almost become easy for you. But for someone else who kind of hasn't had that ability to kind of talk about it and feel supported in their community and talking about it um, or for whatever, you know, in my case, like some self-doubt, it is it is, you
1: know, an, an example of 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 courage and of being brave. Like I'm more like Jacqueline, but I also think that part of the reason I lay it all out there with like everyone I ever meet and put it all in my books and stuff is that I I feel like I'm controlling my own narrative then and I'm putting it out there and saying, like, you can't use this against me because I have already talked about it. Um, and so in some ways, like, whether people perceive that as brave or fearful or what, what I'm doing is managing my own anxiety <laughs> as much as anything yeah. else. So
0: It's also... I mean, I do think, I think one of the risks, in addition to people attacking and undermining, which you know obviously we've all, three of us, lived through a lot of, um, yeah. I think the, another risk that you're taking when you're telling your story is getting pigeonholed as like the victim yes. girl. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I do talks on campuses or wherever, I tend to just come at it as an expert. Mm-hmm. And I might allude to the fact that I've had the experience of being sexually assaulted. Uh, I certainly will talk about it if somebody asks me about it, but I don't tend to lead with it partly because I think that too many anti-rape programs are really just like people telling sad stories. And I don't feel like that moves us forward in the way that I want to. I mean, I think there's an, it's important to tell those stories, but I think it has to be, there has to be a value add. Like once you get people in that emotional place, you have to give them something to do. Um, but partially it's because, you know, the media and the culture at large really wants experts and victims to be two different yeah. people. Uh, which is bonkers, actually, if you think about right. it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But getting back to the idea of storytelling and, you know, Samita about telling your story and, and sort of feeling like, oh, I shouldn't be telling my story. and And honestly, your anthology, Nasty Women, like, I feel like people respond to storytelling, right? Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's actually really important that we tell our stories. I think it's important, and you're right, that we shouldn't only tell our stories if we have a platform, right? Yeah. Like, we have to <laughs> yeah. leverage our platforms to give people a mic who don't have access to a mic otherwise. But, yeah, some of the pieces, I mean, the, that piece that you guys were talking about, you know, the, the I think it was Samita, the, the My Sluthood Myself piece, Right. That you said was like the best sex advice you've had. (laughs) Like that was a very personal essay about my life. And when I was writing it, I was like, oh, this feels sort of self-indulgent. I need to make sure it's not. And I did like I tried in places to like point in other directions and to acknowledge my privilege and sort of contextualize everything and locate it. And we want to be careful and responsible telling your story. But I think some of the most powerful responses I've had to writing or speaking that I've done or when I'm speaking from my heart. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I have to say, so the kind of genesis of me telling that story is I was actually invited to a storytelling retreat as a facilitator. um, And I gave this whole talk on privilege and bringing your most authentic self to your work versus, you know, what's expected of you or your legitimate self. Um, And I stayed kind of through the weekend through a storytelling workshop and One of the first people that presented was a really good friend of mine who publicly talked about being sexually assaulted. And it kind of struck me in this way that, you know, in all the years of work I've done, I had never done before. And so at the end, I was supposed to facilitate something and I ended up shifting the focus and kind of overcoming all of this self doubt to basically tell my story of being sexually assaulted. And I had never told it publicly before. And the number of women that came forward and were like, I also feel like because I have to keep this professional veneer, I can't be vulnerable and I can't talk about these things. And it was such a powerful moment for me of like becoming what I have told other women to be <laughs> for so long, you yeah. know, in kind of their storytelling and really seeing that like in that messiness, like that's when that's when <laughs> that's when some of our best yeah. stuff comes out, right, is is in that messiness and when we let ourselves be vulnerable and you know, and and that's and that's something that I think, you know, going back to the like expert versus survivor, like there's a lot of performativity around survivors, right? Where in order for us to be believed as survivors, we have to be failed projects in some way, right? Like we have to, we have wow. had we we have to have like our lives derailed in some substantial way, and. I almost mm-hmm. wonder if like our reluctance to want to lean into that messiness is internalizing some of that messaging that, you know, I can show you that I am still strong and still professional and still able to be objective on these issues. And it's like, you know what? Fuck that. Right. I'm not objective. I am old, grumpy, fat, <laughs> and a sexual assault survivor, and I'm angry and I have fun and like I have sex and all of that stuff is true at the same time. Like, why can't I just be this messy person and like still be considered a professional human being?
1: Right. That is an excellent point. That, yeah, that we're not supposed to... And, you know, there is an entire book's worth of the ways that we're not supposed to be if we've been assaulted. um, Or if we've been victims of of any kind of crime. And so, yeah, one way, one theoretical challenge to those stereotypes is absolutely just, you know, being a boss.
0: But being a vulnerable, its such, it, even mm-hmm. that is like a paradox, yeah. right? Like, you being a boss, absolutely, but also that's a lot of pressure, right?
1: Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, I, I was just, um, yes, that is Samita's larger point. I was just yeah. stuck on the part where she was talking about the fact that she is a boss in tension with those stereotypes about survivors, and I hadn't really thought of that because, frankly, I've always leaned into being a mess. Um, yeah. <laughs> <so. laughs>
0: that is not yeah, was, like, that like, like, <laughs> the
2: last <laughs> the way that I would describe you publicly. Like <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, no. you know, I'm going to reach out to Kate Harding. Cause that's someone who gets
1: shit done. Like, <laughs> Oh man, you only see the product projects I finish.
0: <laughs> but that's true of everyone. That's true of all oh, yeah. of us, Kate.
1: Yeah, I suppose it is, but I'm supposed to be perfect. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh. How was making the book for you? Because Unscrewed was a, a hot mess for me. It fought me, like, the whole time. And then I was due... It was due, the first draft was due six weeks after the election. Oh, God. And I'd had, like, six months of hardcore writer's block earlier than the year and was mm-hmm. finally, like, starting to turn when, like, the Comey letter came out and I was like, oh, my God, like, what am I even writing this book for? And it was just, like, a hot mess start to finish. Yeah. I mean, I I shouldn't say that. Like, I think the book is fantastic. <laughs> but the process no. was dev- was just grindingly difficult in in a um, whole rainbow of ways. Um, and I know you guys like had to put this together so fast.
1: Um, yeah, and I, I want to let Samita talk about nasty women coming together, but I want to just jump in and say there that when i was writing asking for it there was a point in the middle of it where my husband was like okay you can't do this to yourself anymore like i am going to write the check to give back your advance and you're going to stop trying to write this book um and i said no and pushed through it and then asking for it came out but talk about being a hot mess while writing and that was when i didn't even have trump as president um oh my god and
0: that book is fantastic if if folks haven't read asking for it must correct oh, that well thank um, you um if i if somebody if, if somebody had offered to buy me out of my advance like in the middle of writing unscrewed yeah. i would have absolutely accepted so <laughs> my hat's off to you um yes but so so samita do you want to talk about
2: what it was like putting nasty women together? yeah i mean it was like, i almost feel like bad because it was such a seamless experience <laughs> I, <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it was like it's like, you know, we had the idea like days after the election, I saw Kate post something kind of similar to it on mm-hmm. Facebook. I immediately DM'd her. We had a proposal written like three days later. Like it was like record time. <laughs> like it was like or not like maybe like a weekend later. We like it was like one phone conversation and her and I in a Google document mm-hmm. for like half a day. Um, and then, you know, I think the key, I, th- I think what really worked out for us more than anything was timing. Um, And and getting those initial emails out and getting the commitments really early on while people were really in their feelings about the election still. Um, And for me, it was really this like expression of my own anxiety and frustration because, you know, I I think we all share this like the the election night was such a deep breaking point for me. I mean, it's like a pivotal moment in my personal life where things really like mentally I had such a hard time. And for the first time in my life, had to go on antidepressants and started like several different types of therapy and like couldn't even get to work half the time was like sobbing all the time. And, you know, just literally like it became this thing that just resonated in so many different parts of my life. And so the book gave me this like really optimistic, positive thing to put all my energy into. And, you know, and and, and we kind of we hit a moment that you know, just a few months later, the Women's March, you have this kind of like historic outcry of all the issues that kind of were agitated during the election. It was really the one of gender that people felt the most kind of passionate about. And so building on the momentum of of that of that moment really helped us push everything forward. And And it was obviously like it was taxing and it was difficult. But it also, you know, it's like those first 100 days, you know, every other day was just like, oh. Ugh. and you know and then this was this like concrete yeah. thing. every single day it was like what fresh hell today for me and and i don't kate you can speak to you like it was almost like a kind mm-hmm. of therapy for me to be able to go back to that and know that i was doing something
1: that wasn't what i was seeing in the news every day definitely like in in some ways um so it definitely felt to me like a grief process when I realized that Trump was elected. And I know that this is the kind of thing that as soon as you say it, like, you know, this is what makes people tweet at you 10,000 times that you're a fucking snowflake. But
0: I like, mean, like whatever, with those fuckers, literally my Jewish friends and I were talking about sitting Shiva after the election. Right, yeah.
1: Like, it's it. Yeah. And well, because RIP democracy, right? Like this right. just on so many levels. Um, And so the book, in some ways, was sort of like, you know, when I talk to people who have lost parents or whatever, and they're like, I don't even have time to grieve because I have to get up and take care of my kid. Um, In some ways, Nasty Women women was our kid that we had to take care of. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But also, I think, honestly, the the fast turnaround was hugely important for us um, because it, it meant that, like, none of us had time to think too hard about it or to get much down into dwelling and freaking out it was just like okay you know we got deadlines we got to do it which and I still you know I pushed the deadline as long as I possibly could on finishing my essay <laughs> but, uh, but that was also <laughs> but it was really good to
2: get out that was, also that was a beast to get out though I mean you know, there was a lot there was yeah. a lot to go into that essay and I think that that's you know I mean that was a piece of it too and that's mm-hmm. you know I mean I, I think like that's the thing with writer's block because my first book um, mm-hmm. Jacqueline was like yours I mean they like you know I mean towards the end it was like I was like this was a mistake Like we shouldn't have done this <laughs> and, and now the whole world is going to know that I am basically illiterate and they gave me a book deal and I didn't deserve it and um, you know and, and, and I wouldn't say that that, that that the publisher said much different so, <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know so I think like that you know i think that momentum and I, I think also the like power of partnering with somebody who it's like mutual respect and mutual trust and like you know it was like yes. like kate and i all through the process like we knew we could trust each other to like hold each other up when one person was having a harder time than the other and that like you know we'd be like okay this is the deadline but not be like not right. but there was never any drama so it was just this way of like it was like this accountability but it was like the perfect kind of accountability because i knew if
1: i was fucking up she wouldn't judge me for it and and right (laughs) it was it was much more i don't want to let samita down than like i'm afraid gonna get is like exactly Um, where you want to be in a work partnership exactly (laughs) (laughs) so that really really
2: helped which i think for you jacqueline is like when you're writing by yourself like i just feel like that makes it so much like when you have tons of different people checking in with you and, and you have this kind of community you're moving forward I think that's a little bit easier mm-hmm. than just like, I'm out here on my own writing all these words by myself.
1: So many words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should we wrap it up there, you
0: guys? I think so.
1: Well, we have our one question.
0: Yeah. Oh, go for it. Yeah.
1: Jacqueline. <laughs> yes. This is the question we ask all our guests. What makes you a nasty woman?
0: Ooh. I mean, I like to think I'm nasty in like the biblical sense. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> oh my god, you just killed Samina. <laughs> Wait, is that it or can I say something more? No, about you can that? say
1: more. We just need a minute to die. In.
0: But, you know, like to to deepen it slightly, I I refuse to relinquish pleasure, and I refuse to relinquish my bodily sovereignty. Right, like, mm-hmm. I, I just reject those rules, uh, and I I do think, you know, on my show, Unscrewed, I did a show right after the election with Hannah Blank. Mm-hmm. Uh, the episode's called "An Army of Lovers," and she talked, and and this is again like women are great. She gave me this right, mm-hmm. talked about how sort of like erotic impulses are always destabilizing to the status quo. Ooh, um, and I feel like that's never been more true than it is in this administration, right? That when we are being full of life, like you have to, in order to really embody yourself sexually, Mm -hmm. you have to reject shame. You have to reject all those fucking social rules. um, And you have to like allow chaos in, you know, like I really do feel like, being a pleasure advocate and an advocate for sexual liberation in this cultural moment is like a giant middle finger to the politics of fear and division because real sexual pleasure and real sexual liberation is about pleasure and connection, right? Um, And so how could that not make me a nasty woman? That's awesome. I
1: love that. (laughs) I love it, yes. You are so good.
0: Um, um, nasty, no, thank you. Thank you so woman. much. Yes, you yes, are. that means so much. Yeah. Thanks to you. Um,
1: <laughs> thank you so much for being a nasty woman and for doing our podcast, Jacqueline.
0: Oh, it was a total pleasure, and thank you for doing mine at the same time. So yeah, if people want to follow both of your work and also the Nasty Women tour and book, you know what? Where should they find you? Well, they can find us a few places.
1: Um, We are... The easiest place to go is to the publisher's website, which is Macmillan.com and look up Nasty Women and we will come up there. Uh, That has all of the buy links to the various places that people can buy it online. You can also go to our websites, which I believe you are com. Yes. Yes. And I am kateharding.info and I know on my events page... Uh, You have all of our tour dates up there. So we are going to, I think, 12 cities. We are going to New York, DC, Chicago, San Francisco, LA, Seattle, um, Olympia, Washington, Minneapolis.
0: Don't forget Boston.
1: Boston! We're going to Boston.
0: And we're going to. And I will be live on stage. That's right. October 18th, is that right? Yes.
1: October 18th, we are live at the Boston Athenaeum with Jacqueline Friedman. Woo-hoo. And uh, and we'll be at the Texas Book Festival, and at least I will be at the Miami Book Fair. So lots of places where people can see us. And um, Kate Harding on Twitter,
2: the Samita on Twitter,
0: uh, promotions. Yes. Um, great. And you can find me at Jacqueline F. That's J A C L Y N F on Twitter and Facebook. On Instagram, I'm Jacqueline Effable. <laughs> uh, because for real, I because Jacqueline is taken. T-
1: I Seriously, I have thought you were Jacqueline Fable on Instagram this
0: entire time. Everyone thinks it's Jacqueline Fable, but it's Jacqueline Effable. Of course it is. Um, I love that. <laughs> uh, you can find all the stuff about Unscrewed, the book, at getunscrewed.com. So you can find portals to buy it wherever your favorite place to buy books are. You can find the early reviews. You can find more info about it. And then also... I have my own podcast, which is also called Unscrewed, and folks can find that wherever they like to get their podcasts. All
1: right. Well, thank you again, Jacqueline. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you.